Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener on our private feed where you'll have ad-free episodes and join us in Zoom meetups to meet other listeners of our podcast community. Go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes. You need everyone to be at the bottom of that sales funnel, ready to give their money as soon as that five weeks start. You don't want to start them on that process at that point. My name is Spree Devora, host of The Women in Tech Show. The show means a lot to me. The reason why I wanted to create The Women in Tech Show is I wanted to create a positive piece of content, something where people can listen and say, if she can do it, so can I. Hey, this is Adam Marks. I'm a tech founder, writer, and consultant. And I've been listening to the Women in Tech podcast for about three and a half years now. Esprit does a phenomenal job spotlighting female entrepreneurs from all over the world. And one thing I love about the show is listening to their stories and how they've built their companies and organizations. We should always be pushing for representation and equality. Every time we go into the boardroom, every time we look for co-founders, every time we look to hire employees for our companies. So support representation and equality, support the Women in Tech podcast. Follow me at AdamMarks13 on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And remember to always look for the orange sunglasses. To connect and collaborate with extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. That's womenintechvip.com. The best business resource I have is my mentor's private Facebook group. I've never found a community that cares more about one another's success. It inspired me to create the same thing for podcasters. If you're a tech company or startup looking to grow your podcast audience, I created GetPodcastListeners.com, a private group specifically to discover how other podcasters have grown their audiences so we could do the same. Check out GetPodcastListeners.com. That's GetPodcastListeners.com. So entering into this new year, I've been thinking a lot about what does the word success mean to me? And I actually think I've been thinking about this in the past. And I used to say that success is about taking action. But I think success at the core is not only about taking action. It's about taking consistent action, just being really consistent and really intentional. And so that's what I'd like to see for myself in 2021 is this that I am consistent and intentional through and through. And I don't try to get anywhere overnight or fast track or get frustrated. I mean, I think it's only human that, you know, I'll continue to get frustrated if I'm trying to reach a certain metric of some sort. But I want to do my best to stay focused on just that really consistent action. I remember at the end of the last year, I read James Clear book, Atomic Habits, and I want to revisit Atomic Habits. And he talks about just doing two minutes of something each day. And I was on a path for a while and then I fell off that path. And I think, again, that's only human and natural. Like we all go through ebbs and flows, but at least I want to really give it my best shot to give my full attention to consistency in this year to come. Consistent, practical, slow action. <laughs> anyway, I hope you guys are having a good start to the new year and enjoy the episode. Bye. 
podcast featuring women in tech around the world. So excited to have our next guest, Jess, from Brighton in the UK, United Kingdom. It is such a beautiful, beautiful area. Welcome, Jess. Thanks for having me. So, okay, Jess, let's jump into it. Go ahead. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. So I run a crowdfunding consultancy where I help people run successful crowdfunding campaigns in both the charity sector and startup sector because platforms don't really provide much help. And actually, there's a lot of work that needs to get done. We don't work primarily with women, but most of our clients are women and women statistically do better crowdfunding than men. (laughs) First of all, that's really interesting. Can you kick it off and share with us before we get into your story on how you became who you are today, what kind of results have you got in the companies you work with? Yeah, sure. So in the UK, the average crowdfunding campaign has a 21% chance of reaching its financial goal. Our campaigns have an 83% chance at reaching their goal. Basically, we help them across all of the elements of running a successful crowdfunding campaign. In the last four years, I've been doing this now for four years on my own. And before that, I worked at a crowdfunding platform. But in the last four years, we've closed 68 crowdfunding campaigns. And I've still got a couple more to finish this year. And we've raised over 3 million. I don't know what the actual total is at the moment, but I think it's like 3 million, 100,000 and something because obviously every day it's uh, increasing at the moment (laughs) with all the closures of the campaign as the year comes to an end. We have to jump in. That's amazing that you've helped support people in such an abundant way. Let's get into like how you ended up in this space because it's really interesting. So let's start there and then we'll move back to how you even became interested in business in the first place. But how did you end up in the crowdfunding space? So originally I did an undergrad degree in geography and international development. And I wanted to work in the charity sector. And I thought I'd spend the rest of my life working in the charity sector. But as soon as I graduated, I actually moved to work in a startup because I thought, do you know what, I don't really know anything about running a business or an organization. The degree did not help me in any way in that form. And I think charities in general are quite traditional and not the most efficient. And I thought, okay, I'll go work for a startup. Let me learn more efficient skills, more business-focused skills, because I think that will help the charity sector. So I went to the Netherlands, worked in a a startup there, became very efficient. (laughs) And then I got my dream job, which was in The Hague in the Netherlands, working in an international human rights NGO. And I absolutely loved it. Dream job, funny story. I'm actually allergic to lavender and the air fresheners across the whole building were lavender flavored. Every day for the first week, I went home with the worst migraine, completely knocked out. And then after a week, you know, the boss said to me, how do you think it's going? You've been here a week. And I was like, oh, I love it. Just one small thing. (laughs) And the next day I went in and the whole building was lemon flavored. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. But I felt so bad. Like every international NGO had their headquarters in The Hague, in that building, and I changed the entire fragrance. So I I felt quite bad. But then after that, I we were working with human rights out in Bangladesh, was one of the countries I was working on. So I went out to Bangladesh, and I just thought, you know what, you can change the law, but bad people still do bad things. And when I was out there, I thought, actually, I think, you know, awareness raising is probably more important and more my cup of tea than 
law. I wanted to go back to London, do a master's in human rights law. But on the other hand, I thought, I'm just not a lawyer. Like, I'm wearing a hoodie right now. I'm not up for getting up early and working all hours in offices wearing heels and suits. So I came back to Holland and I thought, actually, a master's in political and persuasive communications is probably more me. And the best one in Europe was in Amsterdam. And I was like, well, to be honest, I hate packing. So I may as well just stay here and do that one. I did that. And then my thesis, I focused on interactivity and charitable giving. So if the charitable advert is more interactive, do you give more money? Are you likely to give money? And actually, I realized it was the perceived interactivity that was more important. So a video like this, we're looking at each other eye contact. It feels like we're interacting with each other, but we're not. I mean, you're in America and I'm in the UK. But just that level of interactivity affects people's giving habits. So I finished my master's, applied for three jobs, one back in Bangladesh, one still in the Netherlands, and one in London. And I was very fortunate enough to get all three jobs. So I had to make a decision and I hate making decisions. And I just thought, you know what, I've never lived in London. Maybe it's time to go back to the UK now. Let's go see what that job's like. And that one was at a crowdfunding platform, running all of their training and workshops for crowdfunding campaigns because of my thesis on interactivity and giving. And I did that and I absolutely loved it. I increased their platform's success rate. And then after a year, my contract came to an end. They moved all of their work back over to America. And I just thought I could go get a real job, but I really want to stay in crowdfunding. I went to all, I went to all the other crowdfunding platforms in the UK and none of them hired crowdfunding specialists. And I was like, but your success rates are so low. <laughs> Why don't you want to help people succeed? And in the end, it was the UK and EU head of Indiegogo that took me for a coffee and said, Jess, just go set up your own business because we need you, but like, we'll never hire you. We'll never hire specialists. And so I went to all the regular job interviews for other jobs in marketing, comms, PR. But in the back of my mind, I thought, if I don't try this now, I'll never try it. <laughs> and so that was four years ago. <laughs> when you discovered that the giving increases when people essentially see each other, have that one-on-one -on -one engagement, how have you guided the companies you work with to implement that into their campaigns? What does that look like? What are the different options? Because it, I talk to a lot, obviously, podcaster <laughs> and all the other stuff I do. I talk to a lot of people one-on-one -on -one, and it is, it's a lot. It's draining and a lot and What's that look like setting it up in these campaign style settings? Yeah, so there's a few different ways of doing it. Obviously, like eye contact is one of the most important things. And it's making sure that you've got that level of eye contact in your crowdfunding video across all the photos that you use. And also the relatability, you know, making sure that your target market sees themselves in the people that you're talking to in the photo so they see that it's a product for them. That's a very simple element. And then a more complex element is having these one-on-ones with a select number of um, like ambassadors and then basically utilizing them and growing the community and the interactions, but through them. So you don't really need to do any more. You've created the community, but they're essentially running it a lot better than you could yourself because you obviously have a hundred other things to do. Wait, so you're saying you don't have to... Other than ambassadors, of course, you don't have to actually show up yourself. It's depending on how you look at the camera when you're making a video. 
it's a combination. Yeah. The, the least amount of, we try and always make it so that it's going to be the most time efficient and the least stressful. Yeah. Sounds good. Sign me and up. The more, <laughs> and the more delegation that you can do, the better really. I mean, I once ran one online training course and it was a group course. There was a lot of people like in their thirties, there was, you know, one particular woman in her thirties that comes to my mind. And then there were these two retired nurses. So they were like late sixties, early seventies. Every week we have a webinar. They called me up beforehand to ask how to log on. And I'd tell them the same thing every week. Every week they'd forget to turn their microphone off and they'd be like, no, John, I don't want a cup of tea. I'm on a webinar. And every week, everyone else, all these like youngsters were like, oh my gosh, what are these two women doing? Like, how are they going to succeed in raising money? Then when it came down to it, these women absolutely bossed raising money because they just delegated all the tasks. They knew they weren't going to be good at everything. So they ended up raising much more than some of the solo founders that were trying to do everything themselves whilst potentially having a full-time job as well. So I got all these calls, especially from the one lady being like, how are they doing so well? I'm working so hard and I'm so stressed and all of this. I'm like, they're really not stressed. They've just told other people how to do it and what to do. And they're just, they're just sitting back and making the odd phone call as and when they need to. <laughs> So interesting. Like, I think it's really important to have the right processes. And I think it's hard for entrepreneurs to be able to delegate. Do you find that that's a challenge when you start working with people? You're like, okay, a huge part of this is delegating a lot of it. And they're like, oh, no, I need to do it myself to make sure it gets done right. Yeah, especially at the beginning of our of our working together. They really don't want to delegate or unfortunately choose wrong people to delegate to and then end up maybe like getting rid of them halfway through a campaign however usually we find before launching the campaign they have found the right person to delegate to they're feeling much safer to delegate because essentially I've delegated them work so it's not their ideas anymore it's like my ideas get getting onto them they then delegate it out further usually by the time the campaign launches they are okay with the delegation, but at the beginning, there's usually a lot of uh, head crashing. Let's jump into your story. So when did you first become interested in technology and in business? Definitely when I moved to Holland, because before that... So it wasn't until you were an adult? Yeah, no. I honestly thought I would always work in the charity sector. I worked my first ever job when I was 16. I guess I could say I was kind of interested then. My first ever job when I was 16 was as a surf photographer. <laughs> surf? Like surfing? Yeah. That's dope. Yeah. Why would you ever switch away from that? <laughs> so, you know, I don't know how it is in America, but at school in England, when you're like 15, you have to do a week of work experience. Oh, we should have to do that. We, we don't. Yeah. Well, normally kids like just go and work with their parents or a parent or friend or the a local school you know, always get those types of jobs. And I just thought, no, this is a week where I can go have super fun. So in the end, it was between a surf photographer or an old school vehicle mechanic. <laughs> yeah. And in the end, I just thought, no, I want to go be a surf photographer and be on the beach all week because it happens in June. That sounds amazing. And so I went to do that when I was 15. And then he invited me back the next year, like, oh, when you finish your high school and you have your summer holidays, do you want to come and work back here full time? 
I was like, uh, yes. So I left home at 16 and went to go work there full time over Wait, the really? I lived with this old lady called Mrs. Lemon, who was about 75 years old, but she rented her room to me. She had a spare room in her house and she rented it to me for £70 a week <laughs> and let me live there for the whole of the summer 16? holiday. Yeah, my mom's crazy. That's incredible. <laughs> my parents were the same, yeah. Hilarious story, as this is on video. I actually got, this is a jumper from when I was 16 and I had that job. And everybody's <laughs> listening right now that, like, she's wearing a sweatshirt. The re- you guys get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Embarrassingly, it still fits. <laughs> How is that embarrassingly? That's fantastic. <laughs> Jealous. But yeah, so then... I guess I was kind of interested in business then because my wage was so low, but I got commission on every image I sold. And then I also got taught, you know, the uh, basics in the photo editing to make the waves look better, to make the lighting better and using a printing machine on the beach as well, which was quite hard with a lot of sand flying around. So in order, again, to keep costs down, you have to make sure you get that right first time. Otherwise, it just messes it up. So I guess I was interested then, but I never really thought that that would be an actual job that I'd have as an adult. I just thought that's a really fun job then. My idea was always to go and, you know, work in developing countries, ideally like developing programs that worked. But And I really enjoyed working in Bangladesh. It was great to be there and to see how they worked. So Again, that was completely different. I worked for BRAC, which is actually the biggest NGO in the world, but no one's ever really heard of it. And it's the second government of Bangladesh. Every element that a government works in, they go and also work in that. So it was 20 stories tall building with four elevators. Two go to the even numbers and two go to the odd numbers. And I was like, well, the last job I had you know, really, I was on a beach and now I'm 20 stories and four elevators. This is crazy. Uh, <laughs> so that was good. But I, I always thought I don't want to work for a really large corporation because I think you get quite stuck. You can learn a lot for sure, but I don't think you get as much variety in your work because there are so many people. Whereas I wanted to work in a startup because you get to see all the different elements of the job some of which you like, some of which you don't like, but then you at least get to learn that you like them and not like them based on practical experience rather than just theory. I want to get into some more core tips for crowdfunding because I'm sure everybody's like, no, I need to know. But my favorite question to ask is, what's one huge obstacle you've successfully overcome in your career, other than lavender, of course? (laughs) And how did you overcome it? One obstacle that I overcame in my career. And by career, do you mean the crowdfunding? It could be anything in your career. Yeah. Anything that stands out for you. I think I'm generally quite good at obstacles. If I want something bad enough, I'm going to go and get it. And I really like lower the obstacles as, as low as possible so that it can be possible. So obviously when I decided to start my own business, I was living in London which is a very expensive city to live in. And, you know, was this going to be the right idea? Was this just going to be a huge mistake? I think that most people have that giant obstacle in terms of like living costs and everything versus actually going to do it and not being able to, you know, 
have clients or have enough money. So what I did for that was I cut down my hours in the last couple of months so that I could spend the time to create the content I needed to launch the business, the website, to have conversations so that when my contract ended, I already had clients lined up to start work immediately. I did. I thought, you know what, I I do really want to try and make this work. So I negotiated living back with family and I proposed the idea to them, let, let me stay here for six months. Let me see what happens. I'll help you out as much as I can. I'll be working from home, all of those things. And I really put it to them as a proposition. This is my plan. If I get to this stage, then I'll move out. If I don't get to this stage, then okay, I'll kind of give up and go get a real job. You know, I didn't have any dependents at that time. If I could lower my rent as much as possible, not really go out and have fun, then probably I could make it work. And and that's what I did. And I ended up staying with them longer than I expected because I didn't necessarily realize that crowdfunding had a yearly ebb and flow. It's like summer and December and January, I can tell you, worst times to raise money. So they're really my quiet months. And so it was all going really well. I thought it was great. And then suddenly the first summer hit and everything dropped off. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm meant to be moving out now. This doesn't look good. So they let me stay longer. And then I was like, oh, maybe this is a thing that's going to happen every year. And then, yeah, four years in, I've realized definitely a thing. Throughout your journey, like if you could give your 18-year-old self advice, what advice would you give her? <laughs> For the business journey or the life? Both. Both. <laughs> for, for the business journey, 18-year-old me, I don't think I'd change any of the jobs, but I'd probably say to try and get some kind of part-time office-based job whilst at university. In reality, I've had a pretty ridiculous like obviously I chose surf photography it's fun every year at university I worked in a five-star hotel in Turkey looking after rich people's kids not like practical in order to go and start up a business I could have spent the summers working in a startup or an office based environment that would have been better but I wouldn't go back and tell myself that because in actual fact I learned Turkish I had a great time you know, it's a an experience that I'm never going to forget. You speak Turkish fluently now? <laughs> no, I used to speak it quite good. Then I moved to Holland. And basically, in Holland, Dutch people speak really good English. If they don't, they're usually either Dutch Moroccan or Dutch Turkish. So I had then had like a 50-50 chance of being able to speak <laughs> Turkish to them. <laughs> which really saved me on a haircut one time. I had, the guy did not understand what I wanted. And then I saw the Turkish like evil eye up in the corner. And so I looked at him and I was like, do you speak Turkish? Say it in, in Turkish. Turkish. And he's like, it yeah. In Turkish. And I was like, oh, thank God. Okay. This is what I want with my hair. No, wait, say it in Turkish though. Türkçe konuşuyor musunuz? I love it. And so then I, I love it. then I moved to England and then my Turkish went downhill because I just didn't really speak it very often. But I do like the occasional Turkish soap opera. It's like a telenovela, but Turkish is great. They're so funny. But yes, yeah, so I wouldn't tell myself not to go and do that. But I would say like whilst at uni, I I don't know how I spent my time. <laughs> I feel like I could have utilized that time a lot better to get practical business skills. 
It's interesting the stuff that we would go back if we could and say it's like it's a, it was such clarity, but tis how life goes. <laughs> yeah. First of all, is this your first podcast? No, I love okay. podcasts. <laughs> no, no, but being on one, I've been on a couple now. Like I love that. So uh, so many of our guests haven't. So I think it's so exciting to hear like who has and who hasn't. And then what would you say is your favorite tech tool? Could be app, software, website. My favorite tech tool and one that all my clients like if or if my clients were like, what's Jess's favorite tech tool? Everyone would say the same. My favorite tech tool is Trello. Honest to God, I love it because crowdfunding is so step by step recipe process driven. It is so easy for me to lay out week by week what needs to get done. And then I'm very visual. I need everything to be color coded in order for it to actually make any sense. So all my clients get like a tailored week by week, step by step from the moment they start working with us till a month after they've finished raising their money, Trello board of everything that needs to get done and everything stays in Trello, which frees up my email so much because I really hate that. (laughs) (laughs) And I've tried, you know, Asana and a couple of the other tools out there, but they're just not, it doesn't need to be super fancy. It just needs to be super clear to a a human. And, you know, some of my clients are really techie, which is great. And some of them aren't. And I even have to make a video to show people how to use Trello. But in general, I feel like it is a user-friendly experience for the clients. And the number of them that go off and use it after we finished crowdfunding is so funny. One of my now friends, previous client. She has like private Trello boards. She sent me one for a holiday once. And I was just like, well, you you really love Trello. And she was like, it's because you showed me what it can do. And how about a book that really sticks with you? What's a book that has really made an impression on your life? Business-wise, The Company of One, mm. um, which was actually recommended to me by another crowdfunding consultant who's based in Seattle. And I just think it's so good because... You know, a lot of people always ask you what your ambitions are. Do you want to grow? Things like that. And you look at some of the larger crowdfunding agencies and you think, do I ever want to get there? And just that level of like confirmation that actually, you know, you don't need to. You can set other goals rather than growth in order to live your life the way you want to really helps because I've had crowdfunding campaign managers work for me in the past. And at one point I had three working for me. I just felt like then I was just doing HR all the time and I was managing them and I wasn't doing the crowdfunding, which is what I love. And so, you know, really reading that book gave me the confidence to say, actually, do you know what? That's not letting me do my business and live my life really the way I want to. I want to continue helping with the actual crowdfunding campaigns. And the best way for me to do that is to be like, yeah, do you know what? It is only me that's going to be delivering the crowdfunding campaign management. How can people connect with you? And then let's give them like a couple tips to like walk away with when thinking about building their crowdfunding. Yeah, sure. So people can connect uh, on LinkedIn or Twitter, J-E-S, and then Bailey, B-A-I-L-E-Y. Usually in England, I say like the drink. Do you have the drink in America? (laughs) (laughs) I don't. Oh, wait, the beer? Is there a beer? No, it's like a gross coffee Oh, wait, liqueur. yes, we do have it. Bailey. We do have it. You can tell what a drinker I, I am. <laughs> Just daily, like the drink. Um, and then on 
Twitter, it's just crowdfund360. And then realistically, you're like, if you're thinking about crowdfunding, number one thing, first thing to go and do is go look at obviously a few campaigns within your sector that did really well, but then go and look at a few that did really badly and think to yourself, realistically, actually, am I at the same stage as those brands that did really well? Or am I more at the same stage as these brands that didn't do very well? And then you can kind of work out how much you're likely to raise. Then the second thing is, is, you know, work out how much you could raise. So how big is your email list? What's your opening rate? How big is your social media following? What's the engagement rate? And then how much is your product selling for? Because, you know, times your opening rate by the price of your product. And, you know, that's probably a a more accurate figure as to how much you want to raise rather than plucking a number out of thin air. I love that. Can you say it one more time? So work out how big your crowd is and how much you can raise now. So what is the size of your email email list and what's your opening rate? How big is your social media? What's the engagement rate? Then times that number by the cost of your product. And that's, and a, you know, a roundabout figure of how much you're going to raise. I mean, not all of your email lists are buying. In reality, it's going to be less than 5%, but obviously other people will buy too. If that number is significantly less than how much you actually want to raise, then you can't go and crowdfund right away. You either need to negotiate on, I can do this for lower money, and therefore lower the amount, and you've already got your crowd, or you need to think, damn, I've got to go and build a crowd, and then go and build that crowd large enough for when you launch your campaign. When you launch your campaign, you know, it's only five weeks long, five weeks for highest chance of success. You need everyone to be at the bottom of that sales funnel, ready to give their money as soon as that five weeks start. You don't want to start them on that process at that point. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, for being so kind and loving. We met through the Startup Van community. So let's give a shout out to Startup Van. Uh, You want to talk about Startup Van for a second? Yeah, we should give a shout out to Startup Van, but we should also give a shout out to Swiss Contact, right? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I think we've been connected on both of those as well as probably other places too. You talk about Startup Van, I'll talk about Swiss Contact. Okay, so Startup Van is a network of startup founders and they interview them get them on their show have you been on the show i have a long time ago you, yeah in england yes Did you come to england? yeah yeah oh, welcome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then they have a very active whatsapp group of people who have been on their show before and you know a lot of them have crowdfunded on there some of my clients i got them on the startup van show as well but i think they just make really great video content and they're a really good source of help when you have one of those annoying questions that you just want an answer to. You can just shove it in the WhatsApp chat and you'll probably get an answer. And Swiss Contact is amazing. It's associated with the Swiss government to empower uh, emerging startup communities. And so I went to several countries with Swiss Contact mentoring from Macedonia to Albania. It was just an absolutely, I went to Bosnia, absolutely amazing, so many places. And I'm really grateful to have been a part of that. And my fave was Serbia. Like, (laughs) I mean, not my fave, I just... 
I had been wanting to go to Serbia for a really long time. <laughs> really? I think Serbia is my favorite, but I just don't, I just think it might be because it was the first of the four countries that I went to mm. and for the longest. So I feel just like, oh. Serbia has the best cocktail bars ever. Oh my gosh, yes. I don't even drink. I feel like I would start drinking. Like, I don't drink because it just doesn't interest me. But I feel like if I went to Serbia, I'm a sucker for a great cocktail bar. Fortunately, there's not a lot of those. (laughs) I went to some really cool one where there was like a giant kind of mirror elephant in the outside bit. And then you go in and then there was like an underground passage to kind of a nightclub that was a little bit like a few a few buildings away but this like underground passage and I think there was like a shark down there also it was so weird so cool it makes me think of the (laughs) Ukraine we could go on and on let's get past this pandemic (laughs) let's ignite yeah I had a friend visit I had a friend visit Serbia when kind of lockdown was a bit eased in the summer and just seeing their photos and seeing the food, seeing the photos, yeah. seeing the areas they went to, I was like, oh, I miss it. <laughs> oh, I know what you mean. And, and we've had so many incredible women in tech from Serbia on the show. So definitely check out those episodes. Thank you so much for hanging out with the Women in Tech podcast. If you want to connect and collaborate with more extraordinary women in tech around the world, remember to go to the Women in Tech Facebook group at womenintechvip.com. Womenintechvip.com takes you straight there. Say hello on social at Women in Tech Show on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I will see you guys, talk to you guys, hear you guys in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Jess Bailey, founder of Crowdfund360 based in Brighton, England. We help startups succeed in their crowdfunding campaigns and especially female-led startups. The success rate for crowdfunding is pretty low, so we want to make more female startups succeed through getting their funding through crowdfunding. And you're listening to Women in Tech. The Women in Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. And music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The Women in Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the Women in Tech podcast. To support the podcast and cheer us on, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener, go to womenintech.love, linked in the show notes.